Hello, everyone. Redcoat here. And Santier joins him. And uh, this is the final podcast of Season 1 of the Vernacular Games Podcast, which will be more properly named when we get to Season 2, but we're going to hold off on that until we get there. Yep, we need it nice and ready. Yeah, um, doing all sorts of cool designs and stuff. Uh, I Well, okay, I think the designs are cool. We'll see if you guys think they're cool, too. <laughs> um, yeah. But yeah, so that is where we're off right here. So firstly, what we're going to do today is we're going to restate who is Vernacular Games, Mm -hmm. what we're all about here, like as a development group, uh, and also as a set of podcasters out in the crazy, crazy world of people talking about things they like. Um, and us talking about things that we want other people to learn about. And also, we're going to talk a little bit about some of our favorite casts that we did this season. Mm-hmm. So, first off, Vernacular Games. So, Vernacular Games is our company. We started it from scratch many, many moons ago. I believe the it was a night I was coming back from doing a bunch of testing. I found one of our members, uh, Dragon Coder. Uh, he was playing Dark Souls at the time. Turns out Dark Souls fills a lot of our history. <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, he was playing Dark Souls at the time, and I busted down the door uh, to his apartment. Figuratively. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I didn't actually destroy it. I didn't knock it off its hinges, thankfully. Not that strong. Or maybe I am. <laughs> but I busted down the door, and uh, I just said, I want to make games. And Dragon Coder paused the game, although that does nothing in Dark Souls, but he paused it anyway. And looked at me, because like, can I help? I'm like, sure. And uh, two years later, I ran into uh, one of my guys, uh, we'll call him the Skit Master, or Skitter, uh, ran into a Sientir at a supermarket, I think? No, at Pokemon Club. A Pokemon Club, right. Now, we've run into so many people at just random places, it's it's crazy. Yeah. Um. No, it was one of the artists that helped define some of the key elements of Highway to the Moon that my mom ran into at a supermarket checkout lane. Yeah. You know, you see, I'm bad at this whole keeping things straight in my head thing. This is what <laughs> I got CNT here for. <laughs> but yeah. My um, ironclad memory. Yeah. So we ran into Zantir at Pokemon Club, and uh, Zantir expressed his interest in making things. I think it was specifically like Skitter's like, hey, we need help. Are you doing anything right now? And I'm like, no. Do you want to be doing something? I'm like, yes. And uh, that was in December 2011, and then January 2012, I came in and uh, changed everything. Yeah, he came in and he's like, what are you guys doing with your code? Oh my goodness, that is horrible. I'm getting rid of this right now. We're fixing this. <laughs> yes, my, uh, you know what? Go listen to the Highway to the Moon podcast for more on this story. Oh yeah, most definitely. Um, but yeah, so that was a little bit of some backstory on where Vernacular Games came from. The title, the name Vernacular Games refers to the concept that we want to broaden the gaming horizons by adding more things to the gaming vernacular. And what that really translates to is just trying to make games that are kind of interesting in different ways, exploring uh, new ways to do already existing genres, moving forward into the new world of games and trying to just figure out stuff. Yeah. Asking the fundamental question of why. Yeah. You know, why did people do it this way? Should we keep doing it this way? Yeah. Um, you can look at all sorts of games where, Things have been done a certain way, so people keep doing it that way because it 
roughly works, but that doesn't necessarily lead to coming up with new ways of doing things. Or Like, you can even follow some amount and say, you know, let's make a shmup. But, you know, why not have a guy on a motorcycle? And why not have him on a road? And why not have that fun style of going to the moon? And why not have points mean something mechanically? Yeah. It's all of those, it's all of those questions of, you know, why not do this? Um, and, you know, doing the research, has someone else done this before? Oh, they did it. Did they do it poorly? Did they do it well? And what can we take from all of this stuff? What can we take from history and what history can we make? Both of these things are, this is the kind of stuff we want to try and do here at Vernacular. Uh, incidentally, I didn't actually define the word vernacular. Um, for those of you out there who are not familiar with it, vernacular refers to colloquialisms. What's a colloquialism? These are words that are most commonly used. Yeah, common language. Yeah, common language inside of someone's normal uh, set of words. So these are the words that you come back to constantly. And so by expanding one's vernacular, you're expanding the breadth of words that you use commonly, and you're expanding the amount of different things that you can define and describe. Yeah, it was a big deal when stuff was first written, like books, in the common vernacular of the day, as opposed to Latin. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I know that was one of the things with the Bible in particular, but uh, moving on to other bits here. Dante's Inferno 2, I think, maybe. Yeah? Oh, yeah, actually, you're right. But yeah, that's a thing. So vernacular games is kind of founded around that idea. So when we came up with this group... Uh, I wanted to make some tenets that we adhere to as we move forward. Just things that whenever we're looking to make a big decision that may change the groundwork of how we do one thing or another, we look back at what the company is founded around and see if it changes it too drastically or if we're getting away from what we really wanted to be about in the first place. The first tenet is to make games we want to play. And so that idea is just when we're making a game, at the end of the day, does somebody on the team feel like it's something that they would enjoy playing. If they don't, then how can we know that we're actually making a good product? Seriously, that's that's really important. If no one on the team actually really enjoys the product, then can we really say that we're making something that we'll feel passionate about? Yeah, and that's a key thing. Uh, I think of a story that I've heard of uh, 38 Studios or whatever it was. The the people who were bought by the one uh, baseball player, Kurt Schillings? I don't know that one, so you're, I don't you're know. on that. So anyway, um, the the people who basically ended up making Kingdoms of Amalur, mm-hmm. um, I think it was published by EA, but they were working on MMO, mm-hmm. and nobody in the studio wanted to play it. And it was like... They tried really hard to encourage people to play it, but nobody wanted to. Yeah. And that we don't want to have that be the case with us. We want it so there's at least some people that are like super happy about playing the game. Yeah. And everybody's at least, this is okay to play. Yeah. It's a thing of where at the end of the day, no matter what, you're working on a game for several years, you're going to get sick of it after a while. But it's the idea that you know that at its core... It's something that you would enjoy. And when you were first playing around with that thing, when it was a newborn babe in your hands and you're working with it and you can see what it's going to become and you haven't gotten to the nitty gritty of making it become that, you still have something there that you connect to with it. There's something there that makes you want to make it good, um, so to speak. 
But that's kind of the idea, and that is the red tenant, as I put it, um, because our logo, which admittedly that logo isn't as prevalent as the current one, but both of the logos have this part. That's the red tenant, the V, and that redness stands for passion. So then we get to the second tenant, which is the white tenant, um, standing for a, a clean slate. It's um, making opportunities for other people to get started in the industry. Yeah. If you look at almost any job listing, it says minimum five years experience, minimum five years experience all over the place. Yeah. It's something that like we keep running into constantly. And there are places where they will have lower requirements, but oftentimes those requirements don't get you anywhere. Like you'll, you'll get in there and you'll be like, sweet. I've got a job now. Where do I go from here? And you look at your managers and you're like, oh, you'll get to my position and then you'll be here for another 10 years doing what I do. And I just remember so many years of like after, because I am, I am a college dropout, uh, uh, you know, and when I went into the testing area, I was like, okay, this is the kind of job I can get because I don't have a degree. That makes sense. But then I found all of these other people who had degrees who were very skilled or at least just needed the chance to get in there and really start trying stuff. And they were there with me and was like, what happened, guys? And it's like, uh, we don't have any professional experience. They don't want us. Um, and I mean, that gets into other elements of just how the industry was structured at the time. And it kind of still is structured in some regards where they really valued a lot of old blood. The idea that you needed a certain level of, exper of experience to actually be good enough to do the stuff that they needed you to do. And they weren't willing to take a chance on you and let you become that person, that reliable person. Yeah. And uh, admittedly, taking chances is risky and businesses don't like taking risks. That's actually a part of doing business is trying to figure out how to avoid too many risks. But at the same time, entrepreneurism is the business of taking risks. Yeah. Just a quick aside, uh, for anybody who's curious about where that five years figure comes from, mm -hmm. uh, there was a study or something along those lines uh, a while ago that basically said to be an expert at something, you need 10,000 hours in it. Yeah. 10,000 hours with feedback, I believe, was a critical part in that. So if you look at sort of the average 40-hour work week with two weeks of vacation mm -hmm. for a year, that's going to be 2,000 hours. Yeah. So five years is 10,000. Mm -hmm. They want people who are experts. That's where that sort of minimum comes from, I've heard. And it makes a lot of sense to me that this is where it comes from. The problem is you need places where people are appropriately challenged, where they get good feedback, where they can learn and develop those skills to become an expert. And you can't expect people to bankroll themselves through that process. And they're often, if they're going to be trying to do that, not in an environment where that actually works. Yeah. It's more like if you're bankrolling yourself through the process of becoming a, an expert, likely what's going to happen is you'll become an expert and then you won't need the group that's looking for you. Yeah, so that sort of minimum of experience that people want makes it a horrible catch-22 because people can't get experience. It's, it's one of the things actually that uh, Redcode has noted is that, oh, now that he's has five years of experience making games with working entirely too long on Highway to the Moon. Yeah, working entirely, yes. Um, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden people are more interested in him for that. But he's like, I want to make my own thing work now. Yeah, I mean, it's true. Like, no one was willing to extend me the hand. And I, 
now that some hands are actually being extended to me, I can't really bring myself to take those hands when I know what they're doing to a bunch of other people and forcing them to go through what I did. I don't want to force other people to go through that. I don't think that that's the right way to go about things. I think that people need to be given the chance to spread their wings, try them out. If they fall, they fall. Um, you take a risk on them, and it's a calculated risk, and you see where it goes. That's how you find the new brilliant talent. I mean, if you look at how things are going in the Marvel movie verse, that's how that's how we've been getting a lot of these cool movies. Now, granted, they managed to make a an environment where they don't take nearly as many risks because of the Marvel comics, right? They basically created a franchise where they can go, Marvel name, here's something that you don't know, but you know it's going to be good. Now we're going to put somebody on this that we think has the promise to do something really cool. Somebody that's maybe not as well-known, but they've got a good chance to try and do something interesting, and they will do something interesting. Yeah, and just one one note. 10,000 hours needs to not be 1,000 hours 10 times. Yeah, that's important. That's the thing of, like, that's the dead-end job right there. Yes. Yeah. 10,000 hours of level one tester does not make you the full-on manager of game company management position. Yeah. Um, um, you need... A- Stuff that's actually like you need stuff that actually expands your expands your experience. I know the colleges are supposed to equip you in this way, uh, but I could go off on an entirely well, different tangent there. Not only that, but that doesn't count as the professional experience that people are looking for. Yeah, that's the other point. Anyway, uh, but yeah. So to wrap up the, white, this yeah, part, yeah, the white tenant basically make opportunities for people because Lord knows they need them. So that's that's the white tenant, the the blank slate. That's the color of the G that sits inside of the red fee. So the passion supports the opportunities. The passion makes the places where those opportunities can happen. Yeah, I know. It, it seems like way more thought was put into that than needed to be, but whatever. Then we have the gold tenant. This is the box that encapsulates all of the other parts of it. And this is the one that we've had admittedly more trouble with, but that's because we don't really make that much money. Uh, it's trying to be an example of operating efficiently and effectively and responsibly as a company. Now, that's something that we're learning as we go along. <laughs> but it's um, the side idea- effect of not having a, uh, a business major. Yeah, yeah I'm just going to figure it out on my own, at least for now. The idea is to really look at what we're doing to make our money and trying to make sure that we're not doing it in a way that disenfranchises either the people that are working with us or the consumers themselves, finding ways to actually reach the consumers and specifically do it in a good business practice way where we're actually managing to address consumer wants and needs while also addressing the wants and needs of the business rather than necessarily sacrificing one for the other. Uh, And when we do make sacrifices, that we try to make sure that we know why we're making them, what makes them good sacrifices to make, and that sort of thing. Sure. Anyways, the business aspect is something that I, Redcoat, have been handling mostly for the the part, just trying to do things with uh, exposure, getting us out there, doing this and that, money divvying, figuring out how to make contracts that don't screw the artist, because that's something that can happen is you get... You get an artist on a team, they start working on it, but all of their stuff belongs to the group. So if the group's project tanks, they have nothing. None of that stuff is theirs, so they can't actually put it 
online uh, without risking litigation. And that's not... Or they have to ask for, for permission or whatever. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff that has to that has to go on there. And that's something that I really, I do feel strongly about making sure that, uh, and I mean, that's kind of the white tenant filtering into this part of it. Sure. Is want to make sure that the people that work with me, they get to take what they've done, what they've worked on with them. They get to say, no, I did that. Those two years of my life or one year or even one month, um, I've had a few people work with us for only that long. I have something that states that I wasn't just sitting on my thumbs all day. I was actually doing some stuff. I was working with some people and I was I was making things and gaining experiences. I think that's really important. Yeah. Uh, I think that's probably enough about vernacular at this point. Yeah. We have have enough else we want to talk about. Yeah, yeah. So moving on to the highlights from season one. Uh, Santer, I've been talking a ton here, so it's you. You start. Okay. (laughs) I will will give your voice a break. Uh, So to me, the number one highlight from season one is definitely podcast number 20, The Composite Experience, Mechanics and Narvazad. This was very important i think to try to understand stuff um sort of the genesis of the idea for those that uh don't recall i think i talked about on the podcast was realizing that we talk about mechanics a lot as an important part of games but there's another part of games that we ended up terming the narvazad it's similar in concept to what people call like flavor or things like that yeah but it's an encompassing term for the sort of narrative visual and audio aspects things that work together to make like another half of the experience. And the the model that we had was the game fountain, where the mechanics are the sculpture part of the fountain. Yeah. They define a lot of structural elements. And the Narvazad is water, the water part of the fountain. And how the water flows through the fountain is really important. You have to have the mechanical channels for the water to flow through but the water is part of what makes the fountain as beautiful as it is. Yeah. And it's how those work together towards the goal of the game, right? And that's one of the things that, and part of why I pushed so hard for trying to understand this concept, because uh, Redcoat and I had a lot of discussions trying to understand what was going on here in, mm-hmm. in my brains. Yeah, yeah, that, um, was a long, that was a long one. Worthy discussion to have, though. And um, one of the problems that I had with so many things is... I felt like the Narvazad was being diminished mm-hmm. in games because of the emphasis on how the mechanics push towards the idea of what the game is about and that sort of thing. And what, what I wanted to capture was this idea of you have the game, the composite experience, the goal of that, and you needed both the mechanical and the Narvazad elements to work towards that goal. And it was important to me to recognize the Narvazad. And we coined a term for it because nothing we tried to come up with worked. Yeah, we, we, I remember that. I learned, I think I learned like at least 13 new words that day, just trying to figure out what we were going to do. It was like, then we're just like, oh, hey, Kairoscuro, that is Italian for light and dark. Just put together. Hey, maybe we can do something like that. Nar, viz, odd. Hey, that rolls off the tongue. Let's do it. <laughs> yep. Uh, so that was, to me, like, Narvazad is one of those words that has just entered my common language, mm-hmm. right? It has become part of my vernacular because of this. And the educational aspect of these podcasts, both for the broader gaming audience as well as ourselves, is something that I think fits neatly into sort of the tenets of vernacular. 
Almost definitely. So sort of the next podcast, uh, this is one that I, I definitely think of. We have a list of some of the things, so we are not just talking yeah. forever off the top of our heads. Yeah, yeah. Was uh, sort of the video game economies podcast. Um, but especially how they impact design and how holistic it is. Yeah. Like that was one of the podcasts where as I started digging into that concept, I figured out so many things about game design because there are all of these holistic elements of how the economy interacts with loot and how you're trying to reward the player to make things meaningful and stuff. It's just very, very dense. And I, I recommend listening to that one for kind of an overview on sort of the density of game systems and how so many things interact and interlink with each other. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one of uh, my favorite ones was the Instigating Inspiration which that one flowed out of the this idea that I had personally as a designer when looking at how people think and the concept that you don't just have to be hit with inspiration. In fact, to really do this work well, you can't just wait for it to happen. You have to be able to seek it out, to find it, to make it happen. And that very concept, just in delving into that concept of what does it mean when you've got something that you want to do and you need to figure out how to make it happen? How do you get your brain going? And it delved into concepts of like people think differently. So you need to figure out yeah. how your brain works. What do you latch onto? And then start using that to tease out different ideas basically. Yeah, one thing that I really liked from that one is looking at how creativity is different in different people and how it's so helpful to have somebody whose creativity is different than yours mm -hmm. to kind of flesh out ideas more fully on. Uh, I remember as we were looking at that, we talked about a tree. Yeah. Where I look at things, basically, how does a tree make me feel? What's its presentation like? Um, how does the light fall on it? What shape are its leaves? And sort of what is its presence? Yeah. And when I look at the tree, I look at it as like, how did that tree get there? What are the inner workings of the tree? Um, why does the bark work the way that it does? Why did the leaves turn out the way that they did? And so we're approaching it from two very different areas. But this is the same tree. Yeah. And that's the thing is that if either one of us was tasked with making this tree in something and only just looked off of our own internals, it would be missing something. Yeah. And so having the person that looks at things from a different perspective allows you to make a more complete creative work. Yeah. Um, we will catch things that the other misses. Mm -hmm. And we know, hey, I'm having trouble with this thing. This person's good at this aspect. I can go to them to get help with figuring out why this isn't quite working the way I want it to, why something seems off. Yeah, most definitely. So yeah, that one really got into the concept of uh, not only how to make how to make your creative process, how to kickstart your creative process, but also just the idea of what it means to work with someone else. Yeah, and what your creativity is like and all sorts of things that way. That one's a, a very interesting one that way. Um, then there's the Hard versus Challenging podcast, which that one was a very long podcast. Um, podcasts of that length, it was an hour and 42 minutes. Yeah, it was one of our earliest ones. Yeah, it's like number five-ish, yeah. four or five, somewhere in there. We stopped doing podcasts of that length and started doing a different structure because of how long they were getting. Because we realized we had a certain amount we wanted to say, and we didn't want to shortchange that. Yeah. And so there's a, a lot of it is... um. If you want an example of what some of the note-making process can be like, particularly when we are sort of collaborating yeah. um, to try to get to specific ideas, 
some of those early podcasts, like the Hard Versus Challenging one, is a good example of what that looks like. Uh, it's kind of more of a behind the scenes because we did a lot of that figuring it out. As we went along. Yeah, yeah. on audio. But one of the the big things there that I think was really important, and, and I specifically went back to listen to it uh, earlier today, and the cliff notes are more of a table of contents that Redcoat put in there, helped tremendously with this process. Mm-hmm. So, so this idea from it that difficulty is not a static value. It's represented by a ratio. And uh, as I said in that one, one of the these important ideas is you can kind of calculate difficulty by a success to failure ratio. Uh, and the example that I used was a hallway that a player went through where, say, an experienced player gets through it successfully um, 99 times to every one failure. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe an inexperienced player gets through it successfully one time to every four to five failures, mm-hmm. something like that, like 4.5 failures. And looking at sort of this ratio that you get where you have to take into account a lot of factors when you're calculating difficulty, and it's important to understand what you're targeting when you're setting the difficulty of an area. This idea that you need to come up with who the player is that you're targeting the difficulty to. So maybe in an early area, you're looking at a new player with a character avatar that has very limited options. So the difficulty for that area is going to look different if the player is replaying the game as an experienced. Yeah. It's going to probably go down. Uh, And just sort of those concepts... As well as the idea that just making something hard is where you want to crank up the difficulty. So that way there's a lots and lots and lots of failures to every success mm-hmm. versus challenging, which is where you're trying to make the process of adjusting that ratio to increase the success rate is an enjoyable process, like that learning experience. Yeah, that was one of the key things in that one was the idea that when you're making a game and trying to um, specifically approach that concept of a challenging a challenging experience it's really about um, making the flowering of skill as I will say an enjoyable experience yeah and now we have summarized that podcast in such a way that you probably don't need to go listen to it but uh, <laughs> which is which shows you just how much rambling we didn't it yeah yeah uh, one of the other ones that um, this one is linked to the the composite experience. I believe it was the one we did. Uh, I think it was either before or after. It was really close. Um, it was actually. I think it was more like podcast eleven. The the vernaculars vernacular is what Redcoat's referring to. It was actually in the sort of early teens. I think. Yeah, this was another one where we were. Uh, when we were in the process of getting it up, we were figuring out a lot about our structuring process for these sorts of things. Yeah, well, and what that podcast specifically was about was coming up with definitions for a lot of terms. Yeah. So that way we could talk at each other instead of past each other. Yeah. Um, so that's where we described things like what an obstacle is. Yeah. And um, like what an obstacle is, what an agent is. Yeah. Uh, the idea of currency versus key items and things like that. Yeah. What makes something a resource? Yeah. And that one uh, is one that I frankly would need to review in more detail. But there's a lot of precise ideas. And that's something that I think we as a company can use because we have it written down. Yeah. And I think we might have posted the list and the definitions on our WordPress as well. Yeah, it's up there. But that's one where it enables us, you know, if we need to, to say, hey, I'm going to use these particular definitions to describe things and describe stuff in the design to make sure that we're on the same page. Yeah. Uh, And doing that sort of thing can be very, very helpful. Yeah. And outside of the actual definitions themselves, one of the takeaways from that whole concept is just 
speaking clearly, you have to define things. Yeah. That can be a stumbling block for some. Yeah. It's it's very, very important to make sure that you're talking about the same thing. Uh, and it can be very easy to launch into a long discussion and realize you're not. And uh, I know that uh, Redcoat and I have had numerous discussions that we basically, we spent about an hour to get to the point where we were talking about the same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And that's, that's communication, folks. It, it was important to do. So another podcast topic that I thought was really interesting was the visceral and cerebral. Yeah. Uh, what I find particularly interesting about that was how I started off as visceral versus cerebral and moved it to an and. Yeah, because initially we were, we were looking at it as a push and pull where when you make a game more vis- visceral, it has to be less cerebral. But we, really in actuality... Um, and this actually leans into some of the other ways that we worked with definitions in later podcasts. It was more that they were separate scales. They weren't really interacting with each other. Yeah. But they still pitched and yawed in how much of either type they had. Yeah, I think the subtitle to this was Scales of Engagement. Yeah. It's the idea that uh, visceral is like an emotional gut-based engagement where it's about what's happening or like it's... Um, it's how it makes you feel. Yeah, like there's a whole podcast you can go listen to where we talk about this in more depth. Yeah. But cerebral is more that you're engaging with it intellectually. Yeah. And it's a different type of engagement. They're both valuable. You have to make sure that if you're dropping one, you're raising the other. Yeah. And it's the thing of where it's not that they intrinsically push and pull on each other, but it is still the understanding that you raise one to fill the void of the other. Yeah, because you need to have engagement for the player. You can sort of drop the intensity of that engagement, and you need to at times. Yeah. But there should be something that makes the player want to continue playing. And that's what the engagement's about. The other thing uh, that I remember talking extensively about in that is players come to certain games for certain sorts of experiences, and when you betray that, it causes problems. So, for example, and, and what I recall using an example in that would be the end bosses of like Devil May Cry 4, for example. Yeah. Where you're playing that game for visceral experience and that last boss doesn't really provide one. Yeah. And it doesn't really provide a cerebral one either. Yeah, he's just, just kind of ended up in the middle. He didn't raise the bar on the cerebral aspect to actually make it work. But at the same time, the game never really stated that it was going to provide you with a cerebral experience, to be sure. Yeah, you never played that for a cerebral experience. You might get a little bit here and there, but it was mostly about, you know, the feel-goods of executing combat well. Yeah. So moving on to uh, one last set of casts that I felt um, really good about was uh, the reset, reload, uh, resume uh, casts. Uh, it was a three-part cast. Yeah. Where we talked about... One of the first ones. Yeah. Yeah, it was one of the first uh, multi-part casts. And uh, that one we talked about game over in games and how approaching that can really, really define and change your experience. Yeah, that is a, a podcast series that I do recommend uh, listening to because it shows how it's really easy to overlook aspects of a game that have a huge impact on how the game feels. Yeah. One of the big lessons from it is just the idea is the devil is really in the details. Some of the little things that don't seem like much can really be big aspects because they happen constantly all over the place in your game. Or even if they don't happen all that often, they happen at very specific points where it has an extreme effect on the rest of your experience. Yeah. 
And uh, I complain extensively about reload style. <laughs> the classic reload style. Yeah. Uh, well, it gets used inappropriately. And, and that that's one of the lessons from that series, too, is making sure that the mechanics you're using are appropriate to the sort of game that you're making. Indeed. Yeah, so one of the other things we wanted to hit, uh, you know, before we, uh, before we go uh, and uh, leave you to your own devices until the next season, some of the stuff that we were doing while making season one, because Vernacular is, in fact, a development studio. So, of course, we've been working on things during that period of time. So what have we been doing? I mean, other than releasing Highway to the Moon, which there's a whole set of podcasts just about that game. Yeah, there's like five of them. Yeah. We've also been doing a lot of other projects around Vernacular. Um, we had one, I think it's okay to talk about this one, um, Project Vari, uh, which it was an experiment. We were trying to figure out some new ways to approach development, seeing new, specifically new platforms to get on. And it just didn't quite work out. We didn't have the right lead designer on, um, on the project. I was on other things, so I wanted to see, see if someone else could handle the burden, so to speak. Turns out, well, you know, it's a heavy burden, but there were some lessons we took from that one. Uh, mostly just sometimes you got to end it. Yeah. You got to let a thing go. Learn the lessons. Learn the lessons that you can and move on to your next bit. Also having interventions about gameplay that's not working. That's <laughs> also true. Oh, man. We had a lot of times in that game where... Uh, should we give a brief overview of how it worked? Sure, go for it. So the, the general idea was a uh, sort of a match three type game. It was sort of aimed at the 3DS. Uh, so the idea was you do the match three thing on the bottom screen, and the top screen was kind of an RPG-ish, battle-y thingy. Yeah, like there was a thing. There were other competitive products out there. I think Puzzles and Dragons was the closest thing. We wanted to make something that was a little bit simpler, a little well, to an extent. Simpler in one aspect, but more complex in another, where it was a lot more real-time. Yeah, and it, there was this feeling that it wanted to be more real-time and want to be sort of, like, tactical about what you're matching when and stuff. Yeah. But a lot of the uh, the combat elements, particularly at the beginning, didn't do anything for the game. They're effectively an artificial timer that you could extend by making matches. Yeah. And the biggest issue that came up during the development of the product was while we were definitely drilling towards an intention, the actual how of getting there never quite locked in. That was one of the particular issues. The other one was the fact that we went from, I think we transferred between three different platforms over the course of the product, and that will kill anything. <laughs> yeah. For what it's worth, there's there's a couple of other lessons. The first is, we. so part of the reason why we embarked on it was to learn how to use Unity. You should make sure that the engine that you're using will actually work on the platform that was being targeted. Uh, that's something we should have investigated more. So make sure you do that, folks. The other thing, though, is we did learn some about actually making stuff work on mobile. Yeah. Because we did get a build that works on mobile sort of it, <laughs> yeah it, it functions it just you can't close it oh yeah well you have to do the whole boop, boop, oh, close yeah <laughs> yeah we made that thing i remember it was the whole point i even had that on there was i was very adamant we need to make sure we have a version of this that we can play i need to be able to show this to people um and it, it was really exciting to me actually when we got it 
on your phone and it functioned and everything. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was super pumped at that point because I already had the UI artist working on ways to adapt it to the new size. We had the screen ratio all figured out. Um, and we were just going, we were going like, bam, 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 bam. Okay. Here's all the different things that we can do. And we had some pretty good scrum discussions on all of that stuff. Um, scrum yeah. being a form of group management. Just look it up online. There's a bunch of, <laughs> there's a bunch it's of everywhere. On, it's, it's everywhere. Main thing to note is you get all your people together. They report on what they did for the week. And then you take a look at all of that amalgamate it look at what tasks need to be done this is a form of agile anyway um you look at what tasks need to be done and then uh you either assign the people to those or they choose the ones they work on uh and then you go from there uh yeah anyway um that was some of the stuff we we were working on that one it was a, it was an interesting project but what it just came down to the fact that we started bottlenecking after a certain point because there were parts of the design that were really tense as far as what they needed and it just it was not getting out there in time and we were not getting enough info at various points and in general the actual product itself wasn't quite fully locked in as what it really needed to be yeah but it was a good learning experience in a lot of angles i think for us so that's one of the things we've been doing yeah got plenty of other stuff i mean i think we've got four projects floating around uh, technically six projects, but four now because I had to put two of them on, on hiatus until we had enough tools. This is what I do, by the way. <laughs> yes. Uh, I look at the, I look at all of the different products that we have, all of the different resources that are at our disposal. Um, I say resources, but they're actually people. Um, uh, and what we're capable of, where we can go, how to swing shift it so that we actually have enough people to hit what we need to do without destroying them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's a, that's a big part of it, you know, and, uh, trying to make sure that whatever we're making, we're actually providing something useful to the people that are working with us. So, um, you know, they get a good experience out of it. They have something they can put in their portfolio, all of that stuff. That's what I do, um, for the team. <laughs> Yes, as well as being a very good audience sympathizer. Uh, yeah, that's also true. I have a lot of professional empathy. <laughs> uh, it is an absolutely invaluable and very frustrating thing <laughs> because it's like, uh, so one of the things that I have learned, um, because I've spent so much time like working on game guts. Yeah. Is that at more surface level, you have to implement so many things to allow feedback stuff to happen. Mm-hmm. So this was a problem for me, actually, with both Project Vari and Highway to the Moon. Yeah. Was animation. Oh, yeah. And implementing stuff to allow animation time to occur and things like that. Yeah. Fortunately for me on Highway to the Moon, a lot of it I could get away with by basically backloading the problem onto the AI system and thus the designers. Yeah. And then we were like, oh, we have to do this. Um, but we figured it out. And I mean, what... For what it's worth, because of the way it was backloaded, it meant that the designer had a much more direct effect on the stuff, which meant that we could do much more fine-tuning, which was great. 
I love so many things about Highway. Anyway, if you want to hear about how much I love Highway, go listen to the Highway to the Moon podcast series. Pa-ding! <laughs> <laughs> yes, plug. Um, but yeah, so there's there's been a lot of lessons that we've learned also, just working through things. Communication stuff, how important it is to stick through until people understand, making sure that everybody understands things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, communication is a two-way road. And absolutely. The, the idea that, you know, you definitely want to make sure that when you're in that situation where everyone's got to be on the same page, that you have ways of either separating out the communication so that you can go into the finer details with the people that need it and also bringing it all back together so everyone is aware of the whole picture and where they fit into it. All of these things are really important and it comes down to Although this is kind of the thing that you'll see in big business a lot, I still feel like a lot of the big business guys don't really manage it very well, where you're actually splitting things up into meetings that are really effective. So you're working with the right people on the right subjects and getting the right amount of information. And when you have a large amount of people managing the amount of information dissemination that's happening. Anyway, all that stuff. Yeah. Uh, we should probably wrap up to avoid this being over an hour. <laughs> Uh, but yeah. we hope that uh, you have enjoyed this first season. We thank you for those of you who listened, and uh, we hope that we are able to make a good season two, and we invite you to join us at that time. Yeah, so come on back, people. We love to have you listen to us uh, ramble on and on about this, that, and the other thing. And yeah, I just went into that, into that accent. You might be uh, hearing that in some other products later down the line way later down the line because voice acting is expensive uh, but anyway just uh thank you for listening to us a performer is nothing without his audience and make no mistake these are performances <laughs> just informative ones so with that we're going to give you one final sign off santier signing off for season one and redco signing off for season one play the games you want to play boyos